0: Hello everyone, my name is Ayan Hirsi Ali, a research fellow of the Hoover Institution, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Hoover Capital Conversations. Capital Conversations is an ongoing series featuring discussions between those who generate the ideas that enable a free society and those who turn them into actionable policy. We invite you to listen and participate in discussions between our issue experts and policymakers as they consider solutions to some of our most difficult problems today we'll be talking to United States senator from Iowa Johnny Ernst as part of the discussion we'll be taking audience questions and encourage you to submit yours at the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen let's get started with a brief introduction of senator ernst senator johnny ernst is a native of Red Oak, Iowa, and she has dedicated her life to her state and country, having served in the military for over 23 years, and now is in the United States Senate. In November, 2014, Senator Ernst was elected as the first woman to serve in federal elected office from the state of Iowa, and also became the first female combat veteran elected to serve in the United States Senate. In Washington, she serves on four Senate committees of major importance to Iowans. The Armed Services Committee, Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, the Environment and Public Works Committee, and the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee. Senator Ernst received her undergraduate degree from Iowa State University, where she joined the university's ROTC program. After graduating, she joined the United States Army Reserves. In 2003, she served as a company commander in Kuwait and Iraq. Leading 150 Iowa Army National Guardsmen during Operation Iraqi Freedom. She retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Iowa Army National Guard after 23 years of military service. I'm Ayan Hirsi Ali. I'm a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and the founder of the AHA Foundation. Welcome, Senator Ernst. We're excited for today's conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Ayan. It is wonderful to be with you and all of the folks that are joining us today.
0: Thank you. We're really proud to have you. Really honored and grateful. Senator, one of the unintended consequences of the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is the growing plight of women in Afghanistan we're seeing disturbing reports every day about the difficulties facing Afghan women. One recent report found that many women's shelters in Afghanistan either have closed or are closing, fearful for their safety. And we know that even before the withdrawal, things were not amazing for women honor killings, child marriages, and the payment of a bride price for a woman and the practice of BAD, that is, the trading of young girls to pay the debts of the elders which is tantamount to selling them into child slavery, was occurring in rural areas. But we have another credible report that has focused on the rise of forced marriages in Afghanistan, which is sometimes driven by a family's dire financial circumstances, bringing a life of misery to young girls and their big dreams are dashed. After the withdrawal, we are seeing report after report of hundreds Of thousands of Afghan women who have been, you know, have their schools closed, they've been banished from their work. We know from a BBC report that over 220 female judges are living in hiding. I can tell you story after story after story. And my question to you is Is there any kind of influence we can exert on the Taliban regime to ensure that women's rights are properly upheld? The Biden administration has said they would try to exert international pressure on the new regime, but just how realistic is that in your view?
1: Right, Ion, and, and thank you. And these are dire straits and, and situations that we want to avoid. So really in coordination with our allies and partners, we have to exert maximum diplomatic and economic pressure to make sure the Taliban is conducting itself in an acceptable way. Um, America's capacity to influence the Taliban will be grounded in our administration's ability to effectively weigh the costs and benefits of extending those diplomatic relations to the Taliban. I mean, this is a very difficult situation. Um, We don't agree with what the Taliban is doing in Afghanistan but somehow we have to find a way to influence them. Um, so this is a, a quandary that we're in, but we are responsible. We need to make sure that we're moving forward on that. So as we're looking at the situation now, the, the relationship that we're seeing between the Taliban and al-Qaeda looks an awful like it did in the days leading up to September 11th. And both now can claim victory over the united states Um, They have full and growing ranks because of the large scale releases of prisoners Um, They are experiencing new record recruitment and of course they they sit on a trove of American weapons um, which makes it the 23rd largest arsenal in the world and so that really is a challenging deck uh, that's already producing really tragic consequences for Afghan women and girls. Um, but hard conditions can maintain pressure, which I think um, realistically is our only hope.
0: And speaking to that you know, balancing act, which is the new reality after that chaotic withdrawal, Uh, I want you please to speak to the next question, which is about, you know, our foreign policy and the underpinnings of our foreign policy. Uh, Under Secretary Pompeo, in the previous administration, we had, uh, you know, he had put a commission together to define what it is that America stands for. And we produced that report, the inalienable rights, and that was to inform American foreign policy. What, in your view, to what extent does that now inform our relations with uh, the Taliban and in trying to ensure human rights in general and women's rights in particular? Right, and our founding ideals are not in direct
1: conflict with what we would consider a hard-nosed realist foreign policy. Um, So the best way to keep the American homeland safe is to help maintain peace in what we call our neighborhood. Um, Two oceans have always separated us from a number of our great power adversaries and, of course, violent extremist organizations. But now um, the modern and interconnected world, and, and we see a lot of this cyber attacks, and so forth, is reducing the effectiveness of these physical barriers. And so we really do need a national defense strategy that's focused on growing our international partnerships, uh, empowering our allies, uh, reaching targeted populations that are in crisis to counteract our threats, and then demonstrate our ongoing commitment to universal human rights. Um, very, very important to all of us. And these should be driven through partnerships. So, allied perceptions must become conditions of our foreign policy, and they haven't always been that way. So, America has to remain and continue to become the partner of choice. And I think that unlike previous approaches, instead of trying to go and win the hearts and minds in hostile spaces, we should commit to stand with our friends first. Um, For the Afghan women specifically, I don't think it's quite as complicated. I think our commitment is far more absolute. Our president has made at least three public Commitments. Um, Two of those were to a U.S. audience, and at least one um, of those public commitments was to an international audience at the United Nations. And that was to provide aid and assistance to Afghan women and girls. Um, So I pulled all of my female colleagues here in the Senate together two weeks ago, all 24 of us, requesting. The president's plan for how he will uphold that commitment. Um, So far, I haven't heard anything from the administration, but we have a responsibility to the women and girls of Afghanistan. That is absolutely clear. And I do want to stress that the letter that I led, it was a bipartisan letter. Again, all 24 female senators This was so important that we pushed the president on it Um, so that letter was led by by me and um, Senator Feinstein of California, but again, we have not heard back yet from uh, The president or his team, but we are going to continue pushing Uh, This is a very clear commitment that's been made and he needs to honor that commitment
0: Absolutely And, Senator, as you continue to push this bipartisan effort, I would like to um, draw your attention to the question. There is, of course, uh, the um, the effort to help the women who are, and and our commitment to the women who are already in Afghanistan, but large numbers of people have fled Afghanistan. So, there is the refugee question and as part of that is also the the women who are not in afghanistan and who are somewhere you know in as displaced persons they are trafficked they are sold into a different kind of slavery they have to uh, you know they have to 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 meet all sorts of miserable other challenges uh, what is it that we can do to help the refugees of Afghanistan in general and the women in particular? And as you answer that question, could you please also address the issue of vetting refugees? Because that's one that comes over and over again. How can you tell the difference between those people whom we would love to take and persuade our allies to take in versus those people who wish us harm?
1: Right.
0: Interestingly enough, um,
1: last week, I did have the opportunity to visit an evacuate camp camp in Albania. And while I was there, I was able to sit down and talk with Afghan women. And many of these women, they're professionals. They are educators and teachers. Um, They are devastated by the 20 years of progress for Afghan women and girls that has quickly been wiped away. They are ready to contribute to American life and our culture, just like they helped build Afghan civil society. And the women who carved out a place for Afghan women and girls in civil society at great personal cost, these women are heroes. And many of these women were not evacuated by the United States government, but they were evacuated by private charter and so those that are located in these what we call our unofficial lily pads they're they're having difficulty navigating through our broken immigration system right now and so i I am working and will continue working to get them into the United States. Um, So to help the Afghan women and girls and all of the Afghan people that are still on the ground in Afghanistan, a path forward to get NGOs that have been there for decades and and now expelled must be forged quickly. The challenge is extending aid without funds or resources falling into the hands of the Taliban. So this is really tricky. We have some great organizations that can assist us with this, but as we're providing federal aid, how do we make sure that it gets to those that need it and those that we are trying to evacuate without the Taliban leveraging that and getting a hold of those resources? It really needs to go to the evacuees um, and those that we want out. the vetting issue, though, um, it, it has been a real tough issue, and we have been trying to address this, and I know that many other senators, uh, members in the House, received contact all the time uh, through various social media platforms. I was contacted um, just on my own by, by service members that I've served with providing me names of people they wish to have evacuated out of Afghanistan. And all we could do was forward that information to the State Department for vetting because we really don't know these individuals. Some of them do, Um, but it was very chaotic. Um, So vetting is an issue. I have serious concerns about the vetting I have very little confidence in the administration's execution of the withdrawal. The administration imported a humanitarian crisis to the home front. Um, They turned 12 of our US military bases into refugee camps. And it really created chaos for so many of our our close partners and allies that are presently housing evacuees from Afghanistan. Um, their remedy to this problem set is really no better. The administration has proposed waiving vetting, waiving vetting, and issuing all evacuees a green card, legal permanent residence to all who were brought in. So I agree with many Iowans that that this is a security risk. Um, it. it It fits alongside this administration's continuing inability to enforce a law-bound immigration system. So I am a huge champion of the Afghan Special Immigrant Visa Program. That gives our vetted Afghans who supported U.S. operations in Afghanistan and their families an immediate path to citizenship. They are vetted, though. And I've partnered in this effort with um, Democratic Senator Jean Shaheen um, on the issue, and so I've worked to grow that program and extending the SIB eligibility to really anyone who worked for a non-governmental organization, and to prior- prioritize the SIB program in light of the withdrawal. Um, both are bipartisan solutions. I, I just want to stress that Uh, we work across the aisle on these issues, but the administration has not prioritized those SIB recipients. So instead, the administration, their approach was to let in the um, 125,000 plus of a country of 39 million, um, those that managed to get to the airport uh, through the checkpoints, They have let those in, um, those that were able to get onto a U.S. military aircraft. So not much vetting. It's an unworkable policy. It failed the Afghans and their families who sacrificed so much to support the United States and our peace building work in Afghanistan. And it failed um, so many of those NGOs and those volunteers, the community leaders, um, All of them have been tasked with resettling Afghans in each of our home communities. But moving forward, the only way to address the refugee crisis is really for us to lead with transparent law-bound systems. That really is the humane approach. Um, Certainly, we do not need any more broken promises and moving targets.
0: And I think your criticism of this administration and the way this administration has handled this particular issue of Afghanistan uh, is well-deserved. That criticism to the administration, I mean, no question. The administration has mishandled this and has done it at a terrible cost. Now, assuming that we had a different administration, do you think, A, that this bipartisan effort to try and remedy what we can will go on, number one, and number two, what would a new administration do in terms of the vetting issue? That's quite the headache.
1: Right, and uh, it, unfortunately it is a, a different administration. And so uh, we have to deal with the administration that we have, but I, you know, I do believe that the situation in Afghanistan would look differently if we had a different administration. Uh, When President Biden addressed our nation at the end of August of this year, he told the American people that the U.S. mission in Afghanistan is complete and that his administration would move its focus to new and emerging global security challenges. and, And like we've discussed, um, you know, so many times over, the mission is not complete until we get every American home and provide a path to safety for our Afghan allies. Uh, Americans and our Afghan friends are stranded in a hostile land, which is now led by the Taliban. And the Taliban is an inhumane, terror-fueled regime that seeks to strip away the rights of women and girls and the strong, and you know, the strong partnerships um, that uh, we see around the world, very important to us. But the Taliban, you know, those partnerships are aligned for them with the most malignant terrorist organizations. Uh, the Americans working for charities and other non-governmental organizations that were seeking to educate the women and children of Afghanistan, they're, they're doing so in direct opposition to the Taliban's goals. And I just fundamentally disagree with this president's foreign policy doctrine. I know there are many conservatives and other Republicans who feel the same way. The vital national interest is protection protection of Americans from foreign adversaries, protection from um, those that seek to do harm and, and commit crimes here at home. Um, protection is our government's constitutional commitments to all of its people, all of its people, and defines our vital national interest. And so I, I do believe that we need to um, uh, be an advocate for a foreign policy focused on meeting the acute needs of women and girls, populations in crisis, not a climate economy based foreign policy. So I don't want to deny the bipartisan work in this space because we are working on a very bipartisan basis on these issues. I don't want to paint too stark a picture, but I do believe the loss of American service members and the abandonment of our own Um, Americans and our friends in Afghanistan didn't have to happen. And it's a result of putting politics above the vital national interests that the president claims to understand.
0: And speaking (laughs) of vital national interests, um, the reason that we first went into Afghanistan in 2001 was to stop Afghanistan from being a safe haven for terrorists like those who attacked us on 9-11-2001. And regarding that, the former prime minister of the UK, Tony Blair, warned this September that in his view, uh, the Islamists in general, broadly speaking on a global level, were in many ways preparing or could prepare potentially the use of biological weapons. Afghanistan under the Taliban and under ISIS-K could just be that safe haven. So speaking of vital interests, uh, there is, of course, the humanitarian issue, the plight of Afghan women, the refugee issue, but there's also our own national security and uh, our responsibility uh, as the leading superpower to uh, try and you know, prevent territories like Afghanistan from being, for being used for this sort of thing. What is your take on that? I mean, that seems to me a very urgent and a very important uh, threat.
1: It is um, very important. And we know that... Um, The terror threat is is persistent, and we can't take our eye off that while we um, focus on more of those near peer adversaries like China and Russia. But President Biden's blunders can't be erased. Um, But the United States must now account for them through a new counterterrorism strategy that recognizes the newfound momentum of terrorists and, of course, the the new threats that are emanating from the middle east and in addition to rising challenges from strategic competitors like china and russia so today the taliban control of Af- afghanistan um, is it's there they have reestablished the islamic emirate of afghanistan they have very little concept of joining the international community Uh, they will not participate in a liberal international order. I mean, that's just simply the truth of the matter. So uh, looking backward, um, U.S. counterterrorism operations helped curb the possibility of another 9-11 attack um, launched from Afghanistan. That was great. Um, We needed to do that. And the 20-year strategy was a success but today international terror threats remain in afghanistan and biden had stated that that and you know I, it was a quote i he said something to the effect that terrorist threat has metastasized beyond afghanistan um and he's not wrong on that point um, al shabaab is it's in somalia al qaeda's operating in the Arab, arabian peninsula al nusra in syria um but Afghanistan, Pakistan remains the epicenter for global terrorism. So more than 20 U.S.-designated jihadist terrorist organizations are still operating in the Afghanistan, Pakistan region, and many of them are still seeking to kill Americans and our allies. Um, Unlike the pre-9-11 world, the Taliban now has legitimacy as the ruling government of Afghanistan. So Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iran and Pakistan have already made steps to recognize the Taliban as the legitimate ruling government of Afghanistan. And um, Pakistani leadership has made their alignment clear and they've basically stated to the effect that Afghanistan has um, broken out of the shackles of slavery and that they will continue to function. As their prime sponsor. You know, we don't appreciate that, but that's what they have said. And many for, foresee a smooth and easy transition away from counter extremism, away from that fight towards the great power competition. And that won't happen. Um, this counter terror, counter extremism threat will simply endure. And as unfortunate as it is, counter terrorism remains a focus. Um, We can shift some of our efforts to near-peer adversaries, but I'm afraid uh, those violent extremist organizations are here to stay.
0: I mean, it's true, President Biden, when, you know, President Biden is right when he says that Islamist terrorist organizations have metastasized. That is absolutely true. The Al-Shabaab in Somalia and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and remnants of isis everywhere including many parts of Africa that is all true but they didn't have a state with uh, as much money and as much military power that as we have left them behind in August of this year and so in that sense I think we have empowered violent Islamist extremists all across the world and we've emboldened them to now believe that you know you can if you just wait long enough, uh, the US will buckle and leave. And speaking to that and speaking about our allies, I have two more questions. One first has to do with what, after that withdrawal of uh, August the 30th, and the way we did it, what kind of message did we send to our friends and allies? How reliable are we? And when the next international crisis takes place, what is our credibility when we try and mobilize them to come and take part in an effort that we lead? Yeah.
1: Yes, Ayan, this has been really difficult um, for me in in so many different capacities because I did serve in uniform. And allied partners are so important as we are working around the globe. Um, It has been difficult and concerning to me as well, serving in the United States Senate and representing this great nation and interacting with our colleagues and and partners overseas and beyond Afghanistan, the US's ability to proactively meet these threats to the United States and to the rest of the free world is being aggressively challenged by other great power competitors like China and Russia. Um, Their threats are ranging from land grabs and malicious meddling against our allies you know of course you see in the baltics um, you see it in the south china sea and of course we see it in that gray area space of cyber attacks um designed to cripple our u.s food and energy security so we continue to see our adversaries continuing to advance in Things like cyber warfare, quantum computing, missile technology. There's any number of other key technologies, and of course, for more than 20 years, China has grown its military capability. Now, this is a concern to all of our partners. Um, they, China, has developed and stolen um, a lot of key technologies. They're engaging in just really aggressive predatory economics uh, Diplomatically and militarily threatening its neighbors as we see with Taiwan Um, And they've executed a, a really comprehensive plan to disrupt a stable and a peaceful world order so the Communist Party in China is open in its stated objective to supplant the United States as a global leader and they show very little hesitancy in violating what we consider those international norms and agreements. Um, So communist China is an enduring strategic challenge, but Russia is also showing a reversion to the habits and activities of the old Soviet Union. Uh, Russia has increased its operations in the Arctic. It's trying to deny our operations in the Baltics. Um, of course, I, uh, Iowa is a state partnership program uh, participant with Kosovo, and we see their antics in the Balkans as well. Uh, they continue to try and divide and weaken NATO. Uh, Vladimir Putin's aggression in Crimea, now what we hear may be extending to Ukraine, Um all of those are very threatening actions and these countries are going to continue to take advantage, advantage of the U.S.'s just disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and they've even extended offerings of partnership and legitimacy to the Taliban. Um, this is unacceptable. So if the United States is failing to demonstrate reliable partnership to other allies that are in the crosshairs of these violent extremist organizations or great powers, then the United States' capacity to lead in the world toward peace and, of course, to protect our homeland is simply just going to slip away. And so now is another time for choosing. And this is our time, really, to focus on keeping Americans safe. That's our choice. And global power relations are really shifting under our feet, and we have to adapt now. But again, we have to focus on keeping Americans safe, and our allies and partners are a huge part of that.
0: Thank you, Senator. I will keep, uh, uh, I actually want to say, you also touched on my second question, which was how would our Um, adversaries be emboldened. And I think you've given us a picture of what that would be like. Um, If you are joining us, I'm Hoover Fellow Ayan Hirsi Ali, and this is Hoover's Capital Conversations with Iowa Senator Johnny Ernst. We'll take questions shortly. Please submit your questions at the uh, the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. In fact, I correct that. We are taking questions now. So please, if you have any questions, I encourage you to submit them now. Uh, Submit them through the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Senator Ernst, uh, we have touched on so many things. And just this week, uh, there was a conversation between President Biden and uh, President Xi Jinping. And my takeaway from that was very confusing. Uh, (coughs) The issue of Taiwan came up, and it seemed as if President Biden said, if uh, China threatens Taiwan, we will be on Taiwan's side. And then we, um, we came back and said, oh, by the way, that's not the case. Um, your take on
1: that (laughs) yes i i am very confused about this 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 call between president biden and uh, xi jinping of china was requested by the united states it was requested by president biden and yet he failed to take our president failed to take that initiative to outline to China the issues that are most important to Americans and what behavior we find as America to be unacceptable by China. So ahead of that call, I did issue a statement and a call on President Biden to address a number of issues. And it was varied. There are so many issues with China. One, the use of Um, a hypersonic on a glide vehicle. Um, You know, really, we wanted the president to push back on that issue. Um, The issue of Taiwan, we wanted the president to be firm and committed to the people of Taiwan. And yet he was not able to exude that level of confidence. Um, And then of course, when it comes to trade issues, Um, things that are are very disturbing to the United States. We see supply chain issues. The COVID issue is yet um, not solved. Um, There are so many issues that really we wanted to see in this um, rare opportunity to sit down and visit with Xi Jinping, and yet the president failed to push and pursue answers. And instead of coming off very strong, what President Biden allowed to happen is he looked very, um, very weak in the eyes of the world. And he really allowed China to take the lead in the discussion. I think it's an opportunity that was absolutely squandered, and it didn't have to be. Um, We requested that call. We should have shown strength and yet President Biden did not do that. So I was confused as well.
0: Why make a phone call like that
1: when you're not going to show leadership?
0: Yeah, it's very sad. We look old and we look tired and I know we're not old and tired, but right now that's how we come across to to the world. Um, Senator, there is a question from the audience, uh, from Mary. She says, Senator, thank you for your time today and for your service. As a veteran, what do you say to other veterans who are still struggling with their service in Afghanistan and those feeling it was for nothing? How can the rest of us support those veterans?
1: Mary, thank you for that question. Um, I do appreciate that. And uh, again, uh, to everyone who served in uniform and others, you know, I want to thank them for their service. Uh, the global war on terrorism was an important part of United States history where we pushed back against a violent extremist organization that dared come onto our homeland. And what I say to those veterans, and so many of them are struggling, you're absolutely correct, Mary, is that God bless you and thank you because you saved the United States of America from a second 9-11 attack on the United States. You've kept us free and safe over the past 20 years because you chose to take the fight to the terrorists. And so I am so appreciative of the work that's been done by every single one of our service members in the focus on terrorism. Um, we won 't ever know how many lives were saved because we moved the fight overseas rather than continuing to take those attacks on our homeland um, so the The withdrawal was disastrous it It was horrible to watch what we saw on our television screens. And I think some of those images will be burned in my memory for a very long time. One of the 13 service members that was killed in the final days on August 26th, um, one of those Marines that was killed at that abbey gate, Um, his mother is a friend, his grandmother is a friend of mine. He grew up in my little tiny home community in rural Iowa. Um, uh, Corporal uh, Dagan Page, and we we won't forget that. I don't think any of us will forget that, and we simply won't forget the global war on terrorism. So anytime you run across a veteran, you know I know we always say thank you for your service, but and God bless them, thank them for their service, and let them know. You know we are so glad that for the past 20 years we have been safe from these violent extremist organizations and then find other ways you can reach out to there's a lot of wonderful um charitable organizations that that support those that were impacted by the conflict overseas in iraq and afghanistan
0: senator we are running out of time so i have a final question for you from the audience and i know you touched on it During our conversation, but here goes Diane. Diane asks You spoke of a risk that vetting of Afghan or refugees from Afghanistan in the US. She says it's her understanding that the initial vetting was done before they came to the US. How likely is it that the final vetting would be dropped, or is this just a rumor? Senator, I know you spoke to that, but Diane wants to know. It's a question that is on the minds of a lot of people.
1: Yes. And thank you, Diane. And even uh, very early this year, uh, there was a bipartisan group of senators that went to the White House to meet with the national security team to President Biden to express our concern about vetting and the special immigrant visa process. Um, So again, it was Senator Jean Shaheen and I that led that delegation to the White House to uh, speak with the Biden administration officials. And we were very concerned that we were not vetting people fast enough or gathering their information fast enough. We needed the State Department, Homeland Security to really work together and find a path forward. Uh, Nothing happened, nothing happened. And we didn't see movement on those SIVs until about the middle of July. Uh, And much to the dismay of all of us, Democrats and Republicans. So again, this is a very bipartisan issue. The truth of the matter is, yes, um, those SIVs are supposed to be vetted before they enter into the United States. However, we know at the time when we started taking people out of Afghanistan, there were still about 1,800 people or so in the vetting process. They had started their vetting process years ago. And that's what the folks at the White House had told us, is that it takes sometimes years to actually vet an individual. So do I believe that they actually vetted 125 plus thousand Individuals, when it takes a couple of years to do 1,800. Um, So, uh, this is really concerning. And so, I can't tell you for certain that many of them are unvetted, but my best personal opinion is that many of them are not vetted. And this is what we are trying to work through, is because they are trying to waive certain requirements for vetting. And all they have discussed doing is maybe taking biometrics of a person and then allowing them to go into um, the general population in the United States. That's not vetting. That's just getting their biometric information. Um, So I have a lot of concerns about uh, the number of people that were pulled out into, uh, into our country from Afghanistan that weren't properly vetted. Now we have to figure out how do we unwind that? And I don't know that we can at this point, but we do know there's a number of Afghans that actually were
0: going through the proper process.
1: Most of them are still in Afghanistan.
0: Senator, thank you very, very much uh, for sharing your perspective and your plans. And especially I'm really grateful for the work that you do and the fact that you do it in a bipartisan way. And the fact that the administration is inept doesn't take away from that bipartisan effort. Um, That's all we have time for today. Um, and I want to say uh, to the Senator once again, thank you very much for joining us.
1: It is an honor and a privilege, I am. Thank you so much. Um, please en- enjoy the rest of the day. Stay strong. God bless the US.
0: God bless you and stay safe. To the audience, you can learn more about these series at hoover.org forward slash capital conversations hoover.org forward slash capital conversations. Thank you, everyone.